deceitful impeachment attempt will inflict lasting damage on the credibility of the Texas House. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton faces impeachment. We'll get the latest from Texas for Saturday, May 27th. It's All Things Considered. I'm Eric Deggins. Amid deadly fighting in Sudan, doctors there sound the alarm about a country on the brink. We hope that we don't get to the point of no return. We didn't get there yet, but uh, we are approaching there very quickly. And did the legendary Tina Turner get the credit she truly deserved? For many people, when they close their eyes and they think of a rock star, they picture a rock star. They picture someone like Mick Jagger. But Mick Jagger learned how to dance, learned how to perform. Standing in the wings watching Tina Turner when they toured together in the 1960s. First news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and his GOP negotiators are on Capitol Hill working to broker a deal with the White House to avoid a default on June 5th. As NPR's Humana Bustillo reports, McCarthy remains optimistic. Top negotiators for House Republicans and the White House are chipping away at a deal to prevent the country from defaulting on its loans. Speaker Kevin McCarthy has vowed to give House members 72 hours to read any bill that comes out of the talks. From one post of bill, 72 hours from then is when you can have the first vote. Right? So everybody will have an opportunity, Democrats, Republicans, the American public, and we'll be able to talk about it. McCarthy told reporters he had spoken with the White House this morning. But the two groups continue to disagree on major sticking points, like some work requirements for social safety net programs and IRS spending. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Washington. Vice President Harris made history today, becoming the first woman to give the commencement address at West Point's graduation ceremony, saying cyber technologies will play a bigger role in war tactics. NPR's Juliana Kim has more. At West Point, cadets are trained in cyber, robotics, AI, and systems engineering. Vice President Kamala Harris said those skills are the hallmarks of West Point's graduating class. To protect our ideals in the 21st century, the United States military must remain the most innovative fighting force in the world. Harris said that the future of warfare may include AI to predict enemy moves, self-driving cars and battlefields, and virtual reality to train soldiers. She also said the strength of America's military relies on its people and reminded cadets that this year is the 75th anniversary of two major turning points, the integration of women in the armed forces and the end of racial segregation in the military. Juliana Kim, NPR News. The FDA has delayed a decision about whether to approve the first gene therapy for muscular dystrophy. NPR's Rob Stein has more. The FDA was supposed to decide by Memorial Day whether to approve the first-of-its-kind gene therapy for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. But the company that developed the treatment, Sarepta, says the FDA delayed that decision until the end of June. And now, the agency is considering only approving the gene therapy for children ages 4 and 5. The company had asked the FDA for approval for any patients with a degenerative muscle-wasting disease who could still walk. The company is asking the FDA to approve its gene therapy for Duchenne muscular dystrophy based largely on indirect evidence that it works. Rob Stein, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. For the third straight game, the Boston Celtics need to win or their season is over. They take on the Miami Heat tonight in Game 6 of the Eastern Conference Finals. WBUR's Fausto Menard has more. The Celtics breezed to victory in the last game, but that was at the Garden. Tonight's game is in Miami. Boston is trying to become the first NBA team ever to win a seven-game series after losing the first three games. Celtics star Jalen Brown knows it's going to take another great effort tonight. It's going to take everything. It's going to be a dogfight. I imagine those guys to play better, and they're going to come out aggressive. we got to be ready to take they, they punch, and we got to be ready to, to be resilient and come out and, and do what we're supposed to do. If the Celtics win, the deciding Game 7 will be Monday night at the Garden. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. Day two of Boston Calling is in full swing. Alanis Morissette and the Lumineers are among the acts performing today. The music festival at the Harvard Athletic Complex wraps up tomorrow evening. In what they're calling the first of its kind for any U.S. art museum, the Peabody Essex Museum is launching a TikTok creator-in-residence program. WBUR's Crystal Aguera with more. Through this experiment with social media, the Peabody Essex hopes to bring the museum's art and collections to new audiences, says Chief Operating Officer Kurt Steinberg. We just want somebody who creates, I think, organic, authentic content for TikTok. And we're really jazzed about just listening to what their unique ideas might be. The paid part-time position is posted on the museum's website, pem.org, for people to apply. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Cristela Guerra. In sports again, it's a must-win game for the Celtics against the Heat in Miami tonight. The Red Sox play the Diamondbacks in Arizona tonight. The Revolution hosts the Chicago Fire. And our forecast, clear skies tonight with a low in the upper 50s, sunshine through Monday. Upper 80s tomorrow and upper 60s on Monday. 72 degrees in Boston at 506. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Eric Deggins. The Republican presidential primary field grew by two this week. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis jumped into a race that's already dominated by former President Donald Trump. That means the challenge for the GOP field will lie in convincing loyal Trump supporters that there's a path to victory that doesn't include the former president. NPR political correspondent Kelsey Snell is following this, and she joins me now. Hey, Kelsey. Hi there. So let's start with DeSantis. He jumped into the race on Wednesday with a kind of rocky live event on Twitter. Setting the technical glitches aside, what's his pitch to voters? Well, he basically wants to be seen as the only candidate who can beat Trump. He's betting that his war on woke, which is what he calls it back in Florida, and his general identity as a conservative culture warrior will be a big appeal to GOP voters and a path to winning. Biden's allowed woke ideology to drive his agenda. We will never surrender to the woke mob, and we will leave woke ideology in the dustbin of history. 
Yeah, he framed Florida as a success that he created, and he promised to take that success that he built and turn it into something that can be replicated across the country. So, you know, when I'm not guest hosting, I'm actually a Florida mm-hmm. resident. And I can say that many of the policies that DeSantis has passed during his tenure have been pretty controversial. Yeah, I mean, as you know, he's overseen book bans and drag bans, a ban on abortion after six weeks. He has also overseen laws targeting LGBTQ people and trans people more specifically. And, you know, while that might be popular with some Republican voters, Many of those policies are broadly unpopular in the country in general, and some Republicans are warning that they really do risk alienating critical independent voters if they follow this kind of path of policies. Well, now, you know, our former President Trump is not known for holding his tongue (laughs) when it comes to rivals. How did he respond to DeSantis getting in the race? You know, what's interesting here is that DeSantis and Trump were once quite close. Trump actually endorsed DeSantis when he first ran uh, for governor in Florida. But Trump has been attacking DeSantis on Trump's own social media site, True Social. And he's also running ads attacking DeSantis. He's spending money on this. He has really reserved that treatment for just DeSantis. He's actually welcomed other candidates to the race and hasn't really spent any time attacking them. Well, okay. speaking of the other candidates, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott also jumped in the race this week. What can you tell us about him? Well, he certainly has less of a national brand. He is the only black Republican in the Senate. And there he's known for his work on police reform and for having been a reliable vote for President Trump when he was in office. He was actually a very strong Trump supporter, uh, but he is now running on a message of faith and expanding the GOP tent. He often tells his own personal story about being raised in poverty and about his rise to the Senate, though he has a lot of work to do to gain name recognition with people outside of his home state. So are there any other potential candidates still waiting in the wings? We do know that former Vice President Mike Pence does intend to run. Uh, He already has a super PAC supporting him, and we expect he'll announce sometime the first week of June. And he is also already out campaigning. The message he's been putting out there so far has been that he will bring the Republican Party back to a type of conservatism that defined the party before Trump remade the Republican base. It isn't clear yet how Trump will respond to all of that and to the fact that it is his former running mate trying to distance himself from the former president and trying to challenge him for this nomination. Well, that's NPR political correspondent Kelsey Snell. Kelsey, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. When the warring sides in Sudan agreed to a limited ceasefire, they promised to uphold some basic humanitarian principles. One is pulling their fighters out of hospitals. Sudanese doctors say both sides are violating that and continuing to threaten medical facilities in the country. NPR's Michelle Kellerman caught up with some Sudanese-American doctors who were sounding the alarm. The scenes from hospitals in Khartoum are harrowing. Paramilitary forces have taken over some medical facilities, and the rival army forces have bombed them. Sudanese doctors now say only about a third of the hospitals in the capital are functioning, and just barely. This video haunts Yasir El Amin, an oncologist living in Texas. He's with an aid group called the Sudanese American Physicians Association and says the video is from an obstetrician who had just performed a cesarean section in a Khartoum hospital. And while she was doing that, there was a power outage. So they all pulled their cell phones and they had to complete the operation with the uh, with the light of their cell phones. And she has a very um, 
powerful video, I should say, about uh, them completing the operation under the uh, cell phone light. There's another story that sticks with his colleague, Mohamed Issa, a gastroenterologist from Pittsburgh. He said one pediatrician in Sudan tried to save a child on a ventilator when the electricity went out by manually pumping air with what's called an ambubag. He was doing that for 24 hours, manually pumping it with his bare hands for 24 hours. Everyone is surprised that he was able to do it for 24 hours. Unfortunately, after 24 hours, he had to let go. And the patient died? No, absolutely. Right away. Doctors in Sudan say about a thousand civilians have died since the conflict broke out in April. Isa, who was there at the time, thinks the death toll is higher. And there is also a huge number from the people that have died in their homes. No one knows about them. The bodies that are still, you know, spread out, you know, Khartoum that I have seen it for myself when I was trying to flee from uh, Khartoum to Port Sudan. I, I saw dozens of bodies on the sides of the street. He lost a colleague, another Sudanese-American doctor who was in Khartoum taking care of his family. The doctors came here to Washington to meet State Department and U.S. aid officials, hoping to keep the focus on the situation in their native Sudan. For now, they say it's mostly a war between two rival generals, but Mohammed Issa is worried that the conflict could spiral out of control. We hope that we don't get to the point of no return. We didn't get there yet, but uh, we are approaching there very quickly. His colleague Yasir El Amin says he's worried that the conflict could inflame ethnic tensions. This is not like another Libya, another Syria. It's not there yet. I think it can disintegrate into that, but we there is a room for us to intervene in a way that would prevent it from becoming another Syria, another sad story on the news. But he says the U.S. and the international community have to put far more pressure on the Sudanese generals to get their forces out of hospitals, open humanitarian corridors, and allow doctors and nurses to get back to work. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. A proposal to build one of the country's largest wind farms in Idaho is drawing opposition from Japanese Americans. About 400 turbines would be near a World War II incarceration site. Rachel Cohen from Boise State Public Radio reports. We're currently standing in Block 22. Kurt Ikeda leads visitors inside an old barrack at the Minidoka National Historic Site near Twin Falls, Idaho. There's a bit of laundry and latrine over there. Uh, the bathrooms were not ready until December of 1943. 13,000 Japanese Americans were imprisoned here over three years during World War II. The National Park Service has maintained Minidoka since 2001. Ikeda is a park ranger. His grandfather was incarcerated at a different site in Texas. The only difference between Minidoka and where my grandfather was incarcerated is that it's not protected. It's not preserved. Crystal City is now a high school. He feels it's his role to protect what's left at Minidoka. Many Japanese Americans nationwide say the proposed wind farm on nearby federal public land threatens that. The Biden administration has set big goals for renewable energy. This project, called Lava Ridge, would help the transition away from fossil fuels to prevent the worst effects from climate change. The wind turbines could power more than 300,000 homes. Aaron Shigaki is on board with Biden's goals. And at the same time, he made promises to communities of color relating to environmental justice. Shigaki is a fourth-generation or Yonsei Japanese-American. Many of her relatives were incarcerated at Minidoka. She's fighting the wind farm. 
She says it would change the experience of going to the historic site. It's meant to evoke a sense of loneliness. So that modern day people could understand what Japanese Americans saw and felt, you know, in that desert location. She made her position clear at an open house earlier this year to discuss a draft environmental review. In their own report, it's acknowledged that there would be psychological harm done to our community if such a project were to go forward. The federal agency and private company proposing the WIND project say they're listening to the community's concerns. They've proposed two alternative plans that would reduce the number of turbines, push them farther from Minidoka, up to nine miles away. To some, it's still not good enough. They haven't hit the mark yet on coming up with something that we could support. Kristen Brangle is with the National Parks Conservation Association. It's working with the Friends of Minidoka on a new designation for the historic site and surrounding public lands, something called an area of critical environmental concern. It would prevent wind turbines on more than 300 square miles. We don't want to fight every permit that comes up. There's going to be more. Um, This isn't going to be the end. And so what we need to do is put some protections in place. Brangle says her organization also supports renewable energy, but she says the government needs to take a step back and choose the best places to site projects. The agency is reviewing 11,000 public comments it received on the draft report this spring. A final report and decision could be out this winter. In July, more than 200 people will make an annual pilgrimage to Minidoka that Erin Chigaki is organizing. It's always a treat to have a gathering of survivors. They're all getting up there in their late 70s, 80s, and 90s. She says the wind farm proposal will make this year's reunion that much more emotional. For NPR News, I'm Rachel Cohen. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Empire Loan, with eight locations in New England, proudly recognizing the Lenny Zakem Fund, a public, nonprofit, charitable organization. The fund listens to those most impacted by inequality and provides the funding and resources they need to create lasting change. More at the LennyZakemFund.org. WBUR occasionally offers you the opportunity to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising efforts. A pledge is not required to win a prize. Employees of WBUR and Associated Sweepstakes entities are not eligible for any drawings or contests. For complete rules, go to WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Red Fire Farm, organic summer farm shares with veggies, fruit, cheese, and more, home delivery, or see pickup locations at redfirefarm.com. And Russell's Garden Center, Seven acres of plant varieties, unique bird feeders, and garden decor. A shopping experience for beginning and advanced gardeners. Russell's Route 20 Wayland. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says Republican negotiators will meet the June 5th deadline to raise the debt ceiling. This is both sides work this weekend at the Capitol on a few sticking points. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen moved the date back from the earlier estimate of June 1st on when the U.S. would run out of money to pay its bills. 
Former Theranos head Elizabeth Holmes is scheduled to report to prison next week to start serving her more than 11-year sentence as her appeal works through the courts. And a French courtroom drama, Anatomy of a Fall, won the Palme d'Or at the 76th Cannes Film Festival today. The Grand Prix, the second prize, went to the zone of interest about a German family living next door to Auschwitz. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Eric Deggins. Listen to the story. Here's a story for you. Tina Turner, one of America's greatest rock and roll stars, said she was even bigger in Europe than the U.S. during the height of her superstardom. Here's the icon herself in a 1997 interview with Larry King. Basically, Europe has been very supportive of my music. More than America? Yes. Yes, hugely. Hugely more? Yes. But you're a major star here. You're a superstar in America. Not as big as Madonna. I'm as big as Madonna in Europe. I'm as big as in some places as the Rolling Stones. Turner would find her final resting place in Europe, Switzerland, where she died last week at the age of 83. And Switzerland, with its reputation for peace and neutrality, feels like a perfect fit for a woman who often had to fight against abuse and exploitation to build the peaceful life she wanted. That's a fight you can hear in her songs of love. And in songs of electrifying fervor. Turner filled four memoirs with stories of her struggle. She inspired an Oscar-nominated film and most recently was the subject of the 2021 HBO documentary simply titled Tina. Its directors Dan Lindsay and T.J. Martin spoke with NPR about doing justice to her story. I think there is a, just an inherent contradiction um, or paradox or complication that we were interested in the beginning and it's this idea that Tina's story as a survivor can be very powerful for, for people and, and for especially for other survivors, right? But the thing that we, I think, often fail to realize is, or maybe we assume because Tina has this seemingly strength and resilience that she herself is somehow superhuman. And I think what we wanted to try to show in the film is that she is human like everyone else. But as T.J. Martin says, what she could do with music, what she could do with that voice, made her unlike anyone else. She says herself, you know, it was a gift. She sang in choir, but she never actually had, like, actual vocal training. Same thing with dance. She never had dance training. And yet here she is. It She just, as she'll say, it's just once the music 
plays. It just something comes natural to her. There's never been anyone quite like Tina Turner. Today, we want to look back on her tumultuous and triumphant career and also how a performer lauded as the queen of rock and roll may still be underappreciated. Tina Turner's star power was always immediate and captivating. Armed with a hard-charging stage presence, she had dance moves and choreography that inspired everyone from Mick Jagger to Beyonce. Her eye for stagecraft led to eye-popping costumes and a skin-tight backing band. And her voice, bold as a Mack truck, steeped in gospel, R&B, and rock shadings, made formulaic pop songs sound like classics and brought added power to old favorites, like her take on Ann Peebles' I Can't Stand the Rain. Beyond her performing skills, Turner had a life story that inspired millions and made her a legend. She survived abuse from her first husband, band leader Ike Turner, divorced him, and then built a successful solo career which dwarfed her earlier work. It was a history that spawned several best-selling books, a musical, and an Oscar-nominated film. 1993's What's Love Got to Do With It featured Angela Bassett as Turner, including a scene where she left Ike, running battered and bruised to a hotel. I'm Tina Turner. My husband and I just had a fight. I have 36 cents and a mobile card. But if you would give me a room, I swear I will pay you back. Turner was celebrated for speaking up about abuse at a time when few people did. Still, the singer often said recounting her past abuse was traumatic. She'd hoped to end discussion when she talked about it in her 1986 memoir, I, Tina. Turner even made that point at a press conference, as shown in this clip from the 2021 HBO documentary, Tina. I'm not so thrilled about thinking about the past. The story was actually written so that I would no longer have to discuss the issue. I don't love that it's always talked about, you see. Born Anna Mae Bullock in 1939, Turner was raised in the tiny town of Nutbush, Tennessee, before moving to St. Louis. That's where she met Ike Turner and eventually began singing with his band. Ike wrote the song A Fool in Love for a different singer, but when she sang it in 1960, it became a rare crossover hit, scoring on black-focused R&B and white-centered pop music charts. Even as their musical partnership succeeded, Ike Turner became controlling and abusive. He picked the stage name Tina Turner for the singer without her knowledge. She found out when she saw the cover of a Fool in Love single, and he remained paranoid she would leave him. She talked about those days with CBS anchor Gail King in 2013. He was cruel because he depended on me. He didn't like that he had, had to depend on me. And I didn't want to start a fight because it was always a black eye, a broken nose, a busted lip. Tina Turner divorced Ike in 1978. Playing small shows in casinos, Turner initially resisted her manager's suggestion that she record a song she hated. What's love got to do, got to do with it? What's love but a second-hand emotion? What's love that single, released in 1984, became her first number one hit and sparked a career revival that led to Grammy Awards, massive concert tours, 
and a role opposite Mel Gibson in 1985's Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, playing an iron-fisted ruler rebuilding a town after an apocalypse. All this I built. Where there was desert, now there's a town. There was robbery, this tree. Where there was despair, now there's hope. Civilization. I'll do anything to protect it. She was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice, in 1991 with Ike Turner and in 2021 as a solo artist. She retired from performing in 2009 and faced a series of health challenges in her later years, including a stroke, intestinal cancer, and kidney failure. Treated by a kidney donated from her second husband and partner of more than 30 years, Erwin Bach. Through it all, Turner remained a symbol of talent triumphing over adversity, becoming widely celebrated as the queen of rock and roll. But is it possible that the artist known as the queen of rock and roll was somehow still underrated? That's what the host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, Brittany Luce, put forward in a conversation with Juana Summers. Brittany, I hope you can just start, if you can, by explaining how someone that the world knows as the queen of rock and roll did not get the due that she deserved. I mean, look, this is the thing. I'm just taking a cue from Tina. Tina said famously in a late 90s interview with Mike Wallace from CBS, when he asked her if she felt like she deserved all this, all this meeting her beautiful life, full of luxury, full of beloved fans and sold out tours, she said... I think I deserve more. I deserve more. Um, And I 100% agree. Tina Turner is an architect of rock and roll. And I'm just not sure she's seen that way. Um, You know, I think for many people, when they close their eyes and they think of a rock star, they picture a rock star. They picture someone like Mick Jagger. But Mick Jagger learned how to dance, learned how to perform. Standing in the wings watching Tina Turner when they toured together in the 1960s. Tina Turner essentially taught Mick Jagger how to be Mick Jagger. And I just feel like, despite all of the accolades, I don't know um, if if she really received in her lifetime the queen of rock and roll treatment, um, as, as the moniker so goes. So I think we can all agree that there are a lot of people who did not fully appreciate Tina Turner for who she was. But you point out that there is one person who really does get it right. And that is Oprah Winfrey. I just want to listen for a second to one of the ways that she talked about Tina Turner. We are so in love with Tina. We are in love with Tina. She is our goddess of rock and roll, Tina. (laughs) Not a queen, a goddess. Say more, Brittany. Oh, a goddess. Oprah's 150% right. Oprah Winfrey is you know, larger than life. And she has been for decades. She doesn't even need to use her last name. We all know Oprah as just, you know, a complete sentence. Um, But the way we act when we see Oprah (laughs) is the way Oprah reacts when she sees Tina Turner. Um, And I love that. I love that somebody as accomplished and as known and as famous and as just huge as Oprah is understands (laughs) <laughs> the power of Tina Turner and and also knew well enough to call her a goddess. Uh, there are so many beautiful moments of Oprah and Tina together on various Oprah shows and in Oprah interviews over the years. Oprah invited Tina Turner to her Legends Ball back in 2005, the incredible weekend she hosted at her home for so many, um, you know, black women trailblazers. And, you know, Oprah, I think, is somebody who absolutely showed Tina the utmost respect throughout her life and really not just champion her story, but champion her artistry. Um, I think of one story in particular. I think Oprah 
in some ways wanted to be Tina Turner. Uh, for an episode of the, of the Oprah Winfrey show, she got a wig, uh, a Tina wig made so that they could kind of match. She wore it in that episode. She continued wearing it, though, after that in many other episodes, started wearing it on the weekends, started wearing it to bed uh, until eventually Stedman told her, uh, hate to break it to you, but uh, you're never going to be Tina Turner. <laughs> to me, <laughs> that sort of breathless fandom is the only way to regard the goddess of rock and roll like Tina. Okay, so we just heard Oprah talking about Tina Turner's wildest dreams to her, but I mean, she was such a performer. I mean, this is Tina Turner on the Live Aid stage in 1985, and she was just electric. But Brittany, I understand that when you think about Tina's greatest performance, you've got a different answer. Yes, I think many people think of um, Tina only as a stage performer, which, I mean, obviously she was one of the best to ever do it. But she also was electrifying on film. I'm thinking of the 1975 um, movie based on the album, The Who's Tommy, where she plays this character, the Acid Queen. The Acid Queen has this long solo in the middle of the film. Um, I mean, Tina's changing costumes. She's belting. She's shaking and quaking with her whole body. Um, she's wearing these tall, I mean, I mean, maybe six, seven inch tall, like lipstick, red platform heels, and she's giving it her all. I mean, and this is a film, you got Roger Daltrey in every scene. You got um, Elton John, you know, in one of the songs, you know, also performing in this film at one of the peaks of his fame in the mid 70s. But in a film full of rock stars, Tina, to me, stands out as the true supernova. I mean, look, there is no question that Tina is talented and powerful and was a multi-genre force across music. But one thing I find really interesting is that I understand that you didn't know much of Tina Turner's backstory when you became a fan. When you first encountered her, you met her as this powerful and successful performer, period. You only learned of her backstory, including the years of abuse that she suffered at the hands of Ike Turner, her ex-husband, later. Do you think that altered the lens through which you viewed her? I absolutely think that that shaped my understanding of her. When I first got to know Tina, I saw her as a woman who had come all, already on the other side. She was one of the biggest stars in the world to me. And I think I kind of assumed that Things were always that way for her. Um, as I got older and I, you know, read her memoirs and also like many people watched the Tina documentary that came out on HBO a couple years ago, um, I really came to understand not just what she survived, but how she continued to advocate for herself, hold space for herself and maintain her peace, even, you know, years after she had escaped her first marriage, you know, understanding just how common what she survived is how common intimate partner violence and domestic abuse are. Her story has has really just deepened my appreciation for her, not just as an artist, but as a woman, as a human being. That was It's Been a Minute's Brittany Luce speaking with Juana Summers. This is NPR News. 
the Texas House of Representatives is debating whether to impeach State Attorney General Ken Paxton. The Republican has been accused of illegal acts, most of them related to his relationship with a political donor who Paxton tried to shield from an FBI investigation. The Texas newsroom's Sergio Martinez Beltran is at the Capitol in Austin, and he joins us live. Hi, Sergio. Now, we know, we know the proceedings are underway, and thank you so much for ducking out to talk with us, but what have you been hearing, and which way does it, does it seem like the vote might be leaning? So we heard from the members of the General Investigating Committee, that's the bipartisan panel that investigated Paxton's misdeeds and drafted the articles of impeachment. Those members have gone into detail on how Paxton violated the law and his oath of office. And listen, some of these members are from Paxton's party, the GOP. Here, State Representative David Spiller, he's a Republican who serves on the House Investigating Committee. He praised Paxton's, quote, brilliant legal mind, but he says even Paxton, the top cop of Texas, is not above the law. He put the interests of himself above the laws of the state of Texas. He put the interests of himself over the established laws, policies, and procedures of the Office of the Attorney General. He put the interest of himself over his staff who tried to advise him on multiple occasions that he was about to violate the law. Other Republican members have also said the evidence uncovered by this House committee is enough to impeach. So we know Paxton has denied any wrongdoing. Can you give us a few more details of the allegations against him? Sure. Paxton has called the allegations politically motivated. He's also called the investigation illegal. Most of the allegations listed on the articles of impeachment are related to an Austin real estate investor named Nate Paul. Paul is one of Paxton's political donors, and he was under a federal investigation when he asked Paxton to intervene. And Paxton did, despite his staff telling not to. Now, based on your reporting, there seems to be enough Republicans in the Texas House to impeach him. But what are the national Republicans saying? Right, so former President Trump came out with a statement minutes before the proceedings started and called Paxton a friend of his, and he vowed to fight any Republicans who support impeaching Paxton. Now, on the local level, Governor Greg Abbott has been silent so far. In fact, he had a Memorial Day event this morning here in the Capitol, but didn't talk to reporters. So this is a very interesting intra-party fight of the GOP in the Texas House where you know, not everyone is in lockstep with national Republican leaders. Wow. It, it seems like for Texas, this is pretty historic, right? Indeed. Only two public officials have been impeached in the history of Texas. So if Paxton were to be impeached, he would join that small class. But also, this is historic, Eric, because of Paxton himself. He's beloved by Republican voters in Texas. He's been one of the principal faces of the movement to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. So it's a big day here. Wow. So so if Paxton is actually impeached by the House today, what's going to happen next? So if House members move to impeach, Paxton will automatically and immediately be temporarily suspended from his role as attorney general, and his job status would remain as such, pending a trial in the Texas Senate. In that chamber, members would serve as jurors and would have to vote on whether to convict convict Paxton. And one interesting tidbit is that Paxton's wife, Senator Angela Paxton, is one of the senators who would have to vote on the fate of the attorney general. Wow. Well, thank you. That's Sergio Martinez Beltran of the Texas Newsroom. Thank you so much for that update. Thanks for having me. That's NPR News. 
I'm Susan Levy. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at 6 on It's Been a Minute, remembering Tina Turner. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. It's 72 degrees sunny in Boston at 539. Sunshine through Monday. Upper 80s tomorrow, upper 60s Monday. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham. With homegrown vegetable and flowering plants, herbs, perennials, shrubbery, and with a wide selection of pottery, soil, and mulch, VolanteFarms.com. Huntington Theater. Just announced, don't miss artistic director Loretta Greco's first season in Boston. Season ticket packages available now. Learn more at HuntingtonTheater.org. And Boston University Student Employment, connecting you to smart, reliable students for part-time work. Free job listings at bu.edu seo. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Vice President Harris today became the first woman to deliver a commencement speech at West Point. She praised the cadets for their sacrifice in serving their country while noting the world is unsettled because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Meanwhile, President Biden addressed the Air Force Academy cadets at their graduation in Colorado. In Sudan, sporadic clashes have been reported in the capital, though the city is relatively quiet. A seven-day ceasefire was signed Monday between Sudan's army and a paramilitary group fighting for control. More than 700 civilians have died in the fighting. And in Russia, officials have leveled new charges against President Vladimir Putin's critic, Alexei Navalny, which could keep him in prison for decades. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the University at Buffalo, working with the National Science Foundation to address a shortage of speech-language pathologists through artificial intelligence. More at buffalo.edu slash NPR. And from Progressive Insurance, Progressive is looking for individuals in a variety of career fields who want to help build a culture of inclusiveness. More information, including application, at progressive.com slash careers. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Eric Deggins. There's a roundabout in the middle of a prominent boulevard in Mexico City. It used to be called Glorieta de la Palma, the roundabout of the palm. That's because a majestic palm tree stood there for more than a century. But it died last year. That's when families of missing Mexicans decided to occupy the space with pictures of their loved ones. A tussle ensued full of symbolism and mysticism. Here's NPR's Ader Peralta. I meet Jorge Veracigui Gonzalez at a cafe not far from the traffic circle. His brother and his nephew disappeared in January of 2009. So he says when he heard that the palm had died, it felt like an opportunity. The government constantly wants to hide their faces, so we wanted a reminder in the most important street in the country. Within days, families hung a tarp with about 300 pictures of their missing relatives. But by the next morning, they were all gone. The families, he said, took it as yet another disappearance. It was also a symbolic act. 
because they used the same tactics that the criminals use to disappear our families. It was the same way his brother and nephew went missing. Verastegui says men wearing hoods took them at night. Neighbors saw it. They called the family. The family called the police. La policía nunca salió a buscarlos. But the police never bothered to search for them. A police chief, he says, told them a cartel beat them up, but that they were alive. Verastegui says those words, beat up but alive, have haunted him for 14 years. Part of him accepts that they're dead. También siempre está la esperanza. But then there's always that hope. That uncertainty, he says, becomes a form of torture. But it's also why they can't give up on this traffic circle. Ellos quitan las fotos y nosotros vamos y las colocamos. They take down the pictures and we put them back up. They erect barriers and we put the pictures over the barriers. For a year now, it's been a cat-and-mouse game with the government. The palm dies, the families put up pictures, the government takes them down. The circle becomes known as the roundabout of the disappeared. The government plants a new tree, a huge Montezuma cypress. The families call it the guardian of the disappeared. But within weeks, its leaves fall. As Verastegui puts it, the branches become brittle. They look ashen. Ante lo evidente que era ya un árbol que muy seguramente estaba muerto. Despite the clear evidence that this tree was likely dead, they kept saying it was alive, that it was just struggling to adapt. And then one day, just like their missing loved ones, just like their pictures, the new tree disappears. The government said the tree was transported to a nursery south of the city. They insisted it was alive. But every time we ask to see it, we're rebuffed. The following Sunday, I head to the traffic circle, a huge parade of indigenous activists march across the boulevard. Some family members gather with photos and glue. Officially, more than 100,000 Mexicans have been reported missing. Most of them went missing during the war on drugs. Aurea Rubia Reyes' brother disappeared when he was leaving work back in 2019. The government, she says, thinks they can cover the sun with a finger. She says that's why every time the government tears down her brother's picture, she comes and puts it back up. It's like we're screaming that they don't help us, they don't back us. These days, the traffic circle is just a hole in the ground. The government has placed eight-foot-high metal barriers all around it. The families gather in front of the barriers, and as they read the names of their missing loved ones, they paste oversized black and white pictures on the metal barricades. The city buzzes around them, glass high-rises, cyclists, runners, families enjoying their Sunday. It's almost too much for Rosicela Velasco Acosta. Her son went missing a year ago. Por favor, sociedad, despierta, despierta, tu... Everyone, please wake up. You have a family. This comes from a mother who is heartbroken, who is the walking dead. Please. Por favor, yo busco a mi hijo. Por favor, como lo quieran entregar, pero entreguenmelo. Necesito saber dónde está. Dónde está mi hijo. Vivo, muerto, como quiera, pero ya entreguenmelo, por favor. Please. I'm looking for my son. I want him dead or alive. Just give him to me. She cries. 
and yet no one stops to listen. After a month of asking, the government's environmental agency says we can come to see the Montezuma cypress at a nursery called Nesawal Coyotl. But when we get there, the two arborists assigned to talk to us tell us that we don't have permission to see the tree. We still talk. Right now, says Roberto Quintero, they are still investigating what killed the 100-year-old palm that used to be at the traffic circle. The palm was afflicted with lethal yellowing and pink rot. One of those likely killed it. It's a fascinating scientific discussion, but I stopped them and asked plainly, What about the Montezuma cypress that replaced the palm? What happened to that tree? <laughs> His colleague Isidro Recia says the tree had a tough go of it. Just as it had adapted to its new home, he says, a car crashed into it and damaged about half of the roots. It's likely that the tree's interior tissue was also damaged. The tree was replanted here at this nursery. It's recovering, he says. It's alive. But it won't ever have the structure it had before. At best, a branch might sprout from the roots. Beat up, but alive. We leave without ever seeing the tree, with hope that it's alive, but with a feeling that it might be dead. Ada Pralta, NPR News, Mexico City. Forty years ago, the third hugely anticipated Star Wars movie hit the big screen. It was called Return of the Jedi. Back then, in 1983, All Things Considered host Susan Stamberg asked the young boy to give us a sneak preview of the movie. Han Solo and Luke Skywalker are about to go in the pit, and just as he was about to walk the plank, R2-D2 fired a laser gun from his head. At the time, though, all those plot details really wrinkled our listeners. So much so that the next day, Susan Stamberg issued an on-air apology. Take a listen. Well, the comic book was a goof, but we certainly goofed last night. We goofed so badly that we changed our program before rebroadcasting it to the West Coast, which means that you West Coast listeners won't know what I'm talking about, but enough of you on the East Coast called to complain that we want to apologize publicly to everybody. Calls. There were more phone calls on this one than we ever got in the middle of the hottest Middle East disputes. Calls. There were more phone calls than Richard Gere would get if he listed his number. And all because last night on All Things Considered, we permitted a six-and-a-half-year-old boy to tell us everything, and I mean everything, about Return of the Jedi. You gave the plot away, you said. I've been waiting for that movie for three years, and now you have ruined it for me. How could you do a thing like that? Well, we are sorry. We're contrite. And we're fascinated. Usually, you get angry when we get our facts wrong. This time, we got them right, and you got angry. It's the difference between fact and fiction, of course, and the power of fantasy in our lives, the need for mystery, for wonderful stories that spill themselves out for us. Of course, if they are wonderful enough, this may be an excuse, but I doubt it, if they're wonderful enough, they will come to us new, even though we've seen them a hundred times. That's why people keep going back to see Romeo and Juliet over and over again, or The Wizard of Oz. We know how they end, but find great pleasure and nourishment watching them proceed to that ending. Two years from now, that's how we'll feel about the return of the Jedi. For now, though, our apologies. We will not do that again. Forty years later, turns out Susan was right. We're still watching Return of the Jedi 
and we're still loving it. What word would you use to describe parenting teens? We're hearing from a brain scientist who says teens are a marvel. I want people to understand that adolescence is not a disease, that adolescence is an amazing time of development. As part of our series Living Better, NPR's John Hamilton looks at some new science involving the adolescent brain. You can find a lot of teenage brains at a skate park, like this one in Washington, D.C. Yo, yo, put me on, put me on. All right, all right, all right. All right. My name is Leo DeLeon. How old are you, Leo? I'm 13. Leo has been skateboarding since he was 10. He says getting the nerve to try a skate park for the first time was hard. Yeah, it was kind of scary. How but come? like, I don't know, I was like scared of falling. But like, I, I fell a lot when I first started, and I got hurt a lot. Leo also got better fast. And when he'd mastered one trick, he'd push himself to learn a new one, despite the risks. I was trying to ollie up something, and then I clipped it, and then my board leg went up, and then it hit me in my mouth, and like, my braces, so now I have this scar too. Leo's also broken his arm, but the payoff is he can do things now, like jump the flight of stairs at the other side of the park. I kickflip that one. Yeah? And you landed it? Of course I landed it. It's on my Instagram. Scientists say all that risk-taking and learning, those are hallmarks of an adolescent brain. Beatrice Luna is a professor of psychiatry at the University of Pittsburgh. It's an incredible brain. It's just perfect for what it needs to do. And what it needs to do is gain experiences. A child's brain goes through two critical periods. The first happens about age two. Luna says the second begins around puberty. Adolescence is the time when the brain says, all right, you've had a lot of time now. We have to start making some decisions. Decisions like which connections to get rid of. So you're born with an excess of synaptic connections, and based on experience, you keep what you use and you lose what you don't use. That may be one reason an adolescent brain seeks out new experiences, even if it means a broken arm or a broken heart. Luna says during this period, the brain is also optimizing the wiring it decides to keep. The connections that remain become myelinated. That means they're insulated with fatty tissue, which not only speeds neuronal transmission, but it protects from any further changes. Adolescent brain changes tend to start earlier in girls than in boys. And around this time, girls and boys also begin to react differently to certain experiences, like stress. Luna says you can see that in studies of teens asked to solve an impossible math problem or give a talk to a group of strangers. Males' blood pressure was higher than females. However, when people were asked, what did you think about this test? Men were like, oh, it's fun. And women were like, I really dislike this. This was extremely stressful. Luna says that suggests some differences in certain brain circuits. But sex differences are just a small part of the big changes sweeping through the brain. And Luna says those changes continue throughout the teens and beyond. A lot of times people will think, oh, too late. They're adolescents. But no, because even though it is a time of vulnerabilities, it's also a window of opportunity. Leo, the skateboarder, agrees. When you're younger, you're like, your mind is more open and you're more creative and like, nothing really matters. So you're, you'll really try anything. Adolescence isn't just for humans. Alexandro Rosati of the University of Michigan says you can see it in chimps. There's something really charming about the chimps when they're going through this adolescent period. They look kind of gangly. They have these new big teeth in their mouth. 
And of course, there's puberty. They're going through this physical change in the body. And those same hormones are re-sculpting the brain, basically, during this period. Part of this re-sculpting involves taking risks. Rosati showed this with a gambling experiment. Chimps of various ages were given a choice. They could go for a sure thing, peanuts, or they could choose a mystery option that was either a meh cucumber or a delicious banana. Adolescent chimpanzees were more willing to make that gamble, so they were more likely to choose that risky option and hopefully get the banana, whereas adults were more likely to play it safe. Rosati says that suggests young humans are predisposed to risky behavior. The fact that we see these shifts in risk-taking in the chimps suggests that this is tracking something biological. It's not something to do with human culture or the way children are exposed to the media or something. Rosati says it's something the brains of both species have evolved to do. There's a purpose to this kind of risk-taking. There's an adaptive or evolutionary function to it. Um, so for chimpanzees, just like for humans, this period of adolescent risk-taking lets children grow into adults who are learning to live independently. So how does the brain of a chimp or a human encourage risk-taking? With dopamine, a naturally occurring chemical involved in memory, pleasure, and motivation. Adriana Galvan, a professor of psychology at UCLA, says adolescent brains give larger dopamine rewards than adult brains. That means a bigger payoff from any positive experience. And so it's a feedback loop because then you start thinking, well, that was pretty good. I'm going to seek out and motivate and do behaviors that get that to happen again. And so that may be a piece of chocolate. It may be hanging out with friends. It may be doing things that adults find risky. Galvan says this amped-up reward system also means young brains learn faster from trial and error. Whether that's by taking some social risks or whether it's by jumping off a skateboard, you know, at a skateboard park, all of that is pushing the boundaries because that is how we learn best. What happens when I do this? But Galvan says big rewards and fast learning make the adolescent brain vulnerable to some behaviors that are damaging rather than useful. And so if the behavior is doing drugs, the brain is saying, oh, okay, this is what I should be paying attention to and devoting my neurons and my pathways to. And so you strengthen that. And eventually that's how addiction happens. Which is one reason so many adult smokers picked up the habit as teens. Galvan says that over the course of adolescence, the brain's priorities change. Early on, it gives more attention to positive experiences than painful ones. But then the balance begins to shift. Take Leo, the skateboarder. He says he's more cautious than he used to be. I used to do a lot of stair sets. Uh, too much, actually. 